So I just need to say off the bat, I absolutely love you guys as a church. I love your church. I love your leadership here. I love Dave. I love your elders and your staff. You have an incredible team. You are, you have an abundant grace here in San Francisco. And I, I pray and sincerely that you don't take it for granted. That you don't take this moment, this season of church life for granted. Um, God has given it to you as a community um, to love and enjoy, but to steward and give away. So keep giving it away and, and be who you already are. Okay, sound good? We awake? All right, so 2,000 years ago, roughly 2,000 years ago, there was a riot that broke out, broke out in Ephesus because of the local church. And this morning, I just want to look at what caused the riot in Ephesus. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at the riot together. We're going to start at the end of Acts 19, verse 23. And we're going to do a Quentin Tarantino sermon and go backwards. Um, that's for you film friends over there. That works a lot better in L.A., just so you know. So... Uh, <coughs> Verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, which is what was referred to as the Christian church. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. So a riot breaks out. This guy, Demetrius, who makes little silver shrines to the goddess of Artemis, rallies his tradesmen and people in Ephesus and they create this disturbance, this riot, this uproar in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, I want to give you some background because it's so important. And I think actually what happened 2,000 years ago has radical implications for us today. Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was second to Rome. It had about 250,000 people in the city of Ephesus. It was an influential city. It was a trade capital. It was the banking capital for Asia Minor and most of the world at that point. Um, it was diverse, it was wealthy, and it was very, very spiritual. Ephesus operated from a pagan worldview. Um, to be Ephesian was to worship Artemis. To be Ephesian was to worship Artemis built into their culture, they constructed their lives and their community around the worship of Artemis and other gods as a form of pagan worship. Pagan worship, uh, what you would do is you would offer various sacrifices to the various gods based on the requirement that it took for those gods to give you the outcome of life that you desired. And so you never knew where you stood with the various deities out there. 
And so you would offer time and energy and resources to these gods in order to manage the life that was in constant chaos that you lived. And so Artemis was the, uh, if we were to put a picture of her up, we don't have it. Um, she was the combination of two deities, Kibbola and Diana. And she was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess and protector of small animals, which is ironic that you could be the hunt and small animals. Uh, but really, she was known to provide security, safety, and comfort. She, was, uh, she provided financial provision and success. She was the goddess of sexuality and pleasure and health. Her temple was one of the uh, ancient wonders, one of the, se uh, one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. There was a, a, a festival where a, one million people would flood to the city of Ephesus, 250,000 people, to worship Artemis every year for a festival called the Artemisia, where you would worship through um, temple prostitution. So Artemis expected uninhibited sexual expression in her worship. That's in fact how you connected to the goddess of Artemis. And so she was this um, de required devotion. There's some details there that I, don't even, I can't even say because it's completely inappropriate for what was expected of male priests to follow and serve. There was, she was led by priestesses. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you were transplanted 2,000 years ago to this place and you became a Christian in that type of environment where you were immersed in this over-sexualized, diverse place of worship required you to bring everything you could for, if you wanted a successful business, you would offer your worship, your time, your energy and money for that successful business. Or if you wanted health, you would give your time, energy, and money for health. If you wanted children, you would give your time and energy and money to the goddess that provided children. Or if you wanted um, uh, your business to succeed, you would do time, energy, and money for your business. But you had to give it to a god and you didn't know what it would take. So if you had a bad year, you would offer more this year because you don't know if the gods were going to make it rain or if it was gonna, you were going to have a drought or whatever. So you con constantly lived in a place of anxiety. Can we relate to any of this, by the way? We don't relate to an over-sexualized society. So, what caused the riot 2,000 years ago? Check it out. Acts chapter 19. Let's just start in the beginning. Verse 1. And I want to just give you three points that's building on top of each other. And then we'll pray and you guys can go get brunch. So, while Paul was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them. Paul found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in one co uh, coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. What? caused the riot in Ephesus. Well, it starts with 12 dudes being filled with the Holy Spirit. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We can't miss this. We can't miss this moment in the story of Ephesus. Paul comes into the place, sees some believers, and apparently I've made this point over and over again, but I need to make it again, that there are observable characteristics for people who are spirit-filled and those who are not. And I'll just pause there for a moment. Is your life observably different from non-believers? If, if Paul was here, would he come and say, hey, hey guys, have you re received the Holy Spirit when you believe? No, we didn't even know. We got our Bible studies going on. We got our social justice groups. We got our hashtag prayer nights and team nights or whatever it is. But have you been filled with the presence of God? The presence of God who empowers the transformational life that he expects of all believers so that you may be his witnesses wherever you go. Have you been filled with the presence of God so he can empower you to live an authentic loving relationship with one another? So he can empower your marriage to be a signpost for the world that there is a Trinitarian God who oversees this universe? Or are you struggling like everyone else? And I'm struggling like everyone else. I just know that I feel like God's telling me, why do you keep going for self-help when you have the presence of God? Are, are you parenting in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you being dating in the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, I think what the church, what the world needs is not more programs and Bible studies. I love Bible studies. We need lots of Bible studies. The world needs the church to be set on fire for the presence of God. And there are observable characteristics. Quick side note, do you know that the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the ethical, you know, view of the kingdom life, what it looks like to be transformed, is bookended by the power of the, the Spirit of God, healing, casting out demons, and healing and touching lepers. You know that you cannot live the ethical life of the kingdom without being supernaturally filled with the presence of God or supercharged by it? That's right. That's a freebie. Just check it out. <laughs> Matthew. Chapter 4 and chapter 8. Luke is telling us as a, as, a, as a way of knowing how to be Christian, to be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So much of our planning and leadership is done within the church without the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that we are to live by the Spirit, so let us keep in step with the Spirit. The first church was about continuing the life and ministry of the resurrected Jesus doing all of this stuff through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe this is the cultural moment. We have enough out there to fuel us, but we need people to get the Spirit. We need people to be full of the Holy Spirit. Our cities won't change because of lots of activity. They'll change because we're filled with the presence of God. I want to just read you a quick thing. I, I wasn't planning on it. I was in worship. I'm like, I should tell you about this story from, how many of you have heard of this guy named Billy Graham? All right. So this is a story that was written about him when he visited the church that was experiencing kind of revival in Wales. Um, and so this is a story from Stephen Olford, and I'm going to read it. It's a little long, but just bear with me. It's a great story. So this is early in Billy's ministry. It says, after a day or two of them, Stephen Olford and Billy, they met together and prayed for the Bible or uh, talked about the Bible. Billy preached to a small crowd. According to Olford, Billy's preaching was ordinary and not the Welsh kind of preaching. At the end of the sermon, Billy gave an invitation, but the response was not particularly great. 
And I just have to say as a preacher, this is such an encouraging story. <laughs> Billy had his beginning too. Okay, so still in that phase. Now the next day, the two of them met together. Having spent the morning talking in the afternoon, the two came together and the Lord, um, and they entered the, into the presence of the Lord, worshiping him and praying to him. Billy began to fully express this deep desire in his heart to serve God to the full and be completely given over to him. Olford said at that point, and I quote, all heaven broke loose in the dreary little room. It was like Jacob laying hold of God, crying, Lord, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. When, the, when they paused from praying for a while, Billy said to Olford, my, this is a quote, my heart is so flooded with the Holy Spirit. There was, uh, they were so overcome with joy, they laughed together and they wept. Then Billy began walking back and forth shouting, I have it, I'm filled, I'm filled. This is gonna, the turning point of my life, this will revolutionize my ministry. It's a quote. And then it says this, that night, Graham was due to speak again at a large chapel. It was probably the Tabernacle Welsh Baptist Church. Olford wrote this, when he rose to preach, he was a man absolutely anointed. His impact on the Welsh congregation was startling. The people came to the front even before Billy had given an invitation. Later, when the invitation was given, Olford wrote, the Welsh listeners jammed the aisles. There was absolute chaos. Practically the entire audience came rushing forward. And according to Olford, Graham preached the same sermon at both gatherings. There are observable characteristics with those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. The question isn't, do you want tongues? Do you want prophecy? Are you scared or not? The question simply I have is, do you want more of God? Yes. Number two, Acts 19, verse 8. What caused the riot in Ephesus? Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. That's a new category of miracle, by the way, that Luke has to create. And here's what that means. No, this, this is important to see. Because there's miracles. And then in Ephesus, for some reason, there's extraordinary miracles. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill. And their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That's crazy. That's super weird to me. But it's in the Bible. Like Peter's shadow cast heals the sick in Acts. I don't know if you've read it. That takes some crazy imagination from those that want healing. Think about it. Oh, what's, what's going on here? Well, I want to make a quick point. If you read what Jesus does in the Gospels, he goes to synagogues and what does he do? He proclaims the, the, the kingdom of God and then he heals the sick, sick and casts out demons. Uh, in Acts 1, it says that the resurrected Christ is teaching about the kingdom of God to his church. And then we read about the, the disciples in Paul going into cities, preaching about the kingdom, healing the sick and casting out demons. And it ends, the book of Acts ends with Paul being in Rome. And what is he doing at the end? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Paul is just doing the things that Jesus did wherever he goes. 
In this particular case, he goes and follows the method that Jesus had, start in the synagogue and move out. He starts there, he gets kicked out, and he rents a, a, a philosopher's hall, which was a practice that happened in all sorts of Greek cities, where uh, after the heat of the day, um, people would stop working and they would go into the town, and there would be philosophers that would wander in and rent out space, public space, space to hear philosophers. And in this case, Paul follows that model and proclaims the gospel and teaches the kingdom every single day. He follows them and, and I just need to say apparently it's ex, it was expensive to do that but the church saw it as an important mission. Why was there a riot in Ephesus? Point number two, the church had a courageous missional presence in the city. I don't want to talk about missional presence because we, we can say missional and we all mean different things. I want to talk about a courageous missional presence. One that involves proclaiming the gospel, talking about Jesus with your words and with your life. But one that also is courageous in the sense that we have to expect the things of the New Testament today. Because it wasn't just proclaiming the word so that all of Asia knew about it. It was also demonstrating it so that those that were sick were, were healed and those that needed liberation were freed. The church needs this today. And brothers and sisters, this is what you have already here. You are doing this. You already have a courageous missional presence in the city of San Francisco. And I just want to say for all of you, this is not for the staff to get really good at organization of mission. This is about you recognizing you are the church. Do you have a courageous missional presence wherever you go? Do you have a courageous missional presence every day you live, to everyone you meet, everywhere you go? Because where you go matters. Where you are matters. Because of the grace that has been poured out on your life. You are a walking resource for this city that is desperate for life. Is it not desperate for life? The pain here is tremendous. Can I just say something, one thing that I keep hearing and I'm sensing in prayer? You can't earn your way to Jesus. You can't work your way into a better relationship with God. There is a performance-driven nature here in the city that I haven't seen in a while. And I see it in San Francisco. It's this perfectionism and this hard-working performance, which is a good thing, but when you bring that into your relationship with God, it will destroy your life. You guys, you are the beloved children of God. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn greater love. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you hear anything today, it's to receive your belovedness. This city needs to take in a deep breath and rest in your belovedness. It's from that place that we can operate with courage and power. Does that make sense? As if that's like a side encouraging word for you there, okay? The church had a courageous missional presence. Every, you know, people talk about doing prayer walks. I feel like if you're walking, it's a prayer walk. Like, I don't know what, like, so when I walk my son to school, when I go down my neighborhood on a stroll with my 18-month-old, I'm walking with a purpose that every step I take, God's presence is going to move forward in this place, that anxiety will leave and peace will come in, that conflict will dismerge. Like, this is what we have to see, that the church needs to be set on fire on mission, and our numbers need to change. We don't need to count how many people are in the rows. 
When you see, is, is San Francisco less lost because of reality? Are there less homelessness because of the church? I don't mean the programs, but because brothers and sisters, these are our people. This is what, I, we should have no need for foster care anymore. Because there should be zero kids in the foster system because the church said, no, it's on us. Like in our city, this is how we do it in Long Beach. The numbers we count, 53% are single mom families. Eight out of 10 African-American homes don't have a father in the home. One out of four people in my city live below the poverty line. We, we see that our involvement in the city, we don't have a vision for Garden Church. We have a vision for in Long Beach as it is in heaven. The byproduct of a vision for the city and disciples is a beautiful church. Do you have a missional presence where you go? Are you carrying courage into your workplace? And I don't mean start passing out tracks. I don't mean start being obnoxious. I mean being very thoughtful and courageous to bring the love of God wherever you go. This, just this morning, I was in a, I'm in an Airbnb and uh, the heater finally turns on, central heater. <laughs> But it's a sauna. I promise you, it was, it was a sauna in the room. And so I finally talked to the person, and she answers, and she's in a hospital. What's going on? I, ask, I tell her about the, the heater, and I'm like, hey, but why are you in the hospital? I have an infection. My, my family's flown out. Uh, my daughters are upstairs. That's why the heater's on. I'll tell them to turn it down. And, um, well, I just say, hey, I'm, I, can I pray for you? I believe God can heal you, and I, I want to just encourage you with prayer. And she just immediately starts weeping. We talked for 30 minutes this morning. I'm like, I gotta practice my sermon, I'll call you. No, that's not what I said. I didn't say that. And then I just encouraged her and I, I sent her the information to this church and I told her about this beautiful church here in San Francisco that would love to walk and pray for her. And she's getting uh, surgery tomorrow because of this infection she has. But it's, we just need people to stop and be courageous and say, actually, I, have, I live in a different reality than you and I believe God can break in. Do you believe it? How are we doing? I'm going to preach like I don't, I'm not coming back because I'm not coming back. So the kingdom expands. By the way, this is another side note. I, you didn't do the clock. I don't know how much time I have yet. Just tell me what time, somebody. Um, here's the thing. Okay, the kingdom of God always expands in the margins of society, San Francisco. This is, not, this is not a problem for politics to fix. This is a problem for the church to embrace. Do you know how you, you win the city over? You know how Joshua won Jericho? Through the house of a prostitute. I'm going to send some spies in. Wait, you ended up where? <laughs> Rahab. The city prostitute's house overnight. Think about what that looks like to a covenantal community of holiness. If you want to win the heart of the city, it's going through the most vulnerable and broken places and staying overnight. The church begins to expand. And there's this technical term here. Uh, I'll get to the technical, it's at the end. But uh, the, the, the church begins to expand into the places in the city and, and, this, and people begin to hear about Jesus because they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching Jesus, they're pre preaching the kingdom and they're demonstrating it with their lives. It's both and. 
So I don't know what's extreme you're on, but we need both. And we need to do it as a local church. We need to do it as people set on fire. Why was there a riot in Ephesus? Verse 17. There's a story right before this of some people trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus without having a relationship with Jesus. They tried to see the effects of ministry without um, loving communion with the source of that ministry. And then verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came out openly and confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came out to 50 drachma, which today in San Francisco, being the wealthiest city, it's probably like $6 million. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That's a technical phrase. So the church does something right and Luke records these technical moments where it does something right and it begins to expand. And in this case, why was there a riot in Ephesus? Because the church gave up its idols. The church stopped worshiping idols. You can write that down. They openly confessed what they did. Now, we have historical evidence. 2,000 years ago, in Ephesus, there was something called the Ephesia Grammata, which was this book of scrolls, um, and it was called the Book of Spells. Remember, the Ephesian mindset was to worship other gods and deities. It was a supernatural city that believed in various powers. And they believed that there were gods and they had access to these gods through idol worship, organizing their life, their resources around worshiping the gods, but also that there were ways to manipulate those gods to get what you wanted out of life. So you used idols to control and manage your ordinary life. You used idols to control and manage the outcomes you desired in life. The book of scrolls, you would go to various priestesses, priests, witch doctors, and purchase scrolls that would be like blessings for your life. So if you wanted your business to succeed, you would buy the prayer from this person and recite this over and over again. This is a fact. This is historical outside of the Bible. We know this is what they did. If you wanted to curse a business partner or competitor, they they had a... They had a spell for that. Like we have an app for that. They had a spell for all of those things. And so we know that that to be in the first century, to be in Ephesus was to be an Artemis worshiper. And the idols you would use were to control the outcomes of your life because it was chaos and it was out of control. So if you wanted more money, there was a spell for that. If you wanted health, there was a spell for that. If you wanted business to grow and get some investors for the startup, there was a spell for that. And some of you are like, where? Where is the spell? If you needed a bigger harvest or find a spouse or get pregnant, there was a spell for that. In Artemis, she had statues everywhere. Her temple sat on 70,000 acres. She was the representation of this worldview. Sexual pleasure, financial blessing, good health, fertility, provision, success, abundance. She was the 
representation of that dominant industry and culture. And their society was organized around a particular set of values that contended with the values of Jesus. Their particular worldview shaped the way they lived and interacted. And what the church realized is that the Ephesian culture could, not, could no longer sync with Jesus' culture. That to be Ephesian, to be a, a, to be a Christian, meant they had to reject certain things that it meant to be Ephesian. And what the Christians had the audacity to do is in Ephesus, they just stopped worshiping their idols. They stopped operating like an Ephesian and started living like Jesus. They publicly confessed their faith and they gave up their cultural norms that they fully embraced. How are we doing? Feeling okay? Want to take a deep breath and drink a water and we'll jump back in? An idol is anything that gives you meaning, purpose, significance, or identity outside of God. They had to let go of cultural norms to fully embrace their faith in Jesus. And the, this is what the local church did. They brought their idols out in public and they threw a bonfire and they burned their bridges back to idolatry. Now, we don't have statues of Artemis today, but we definitely have temples of worship. A lot of you brought your idols in with you today. And I'm not going to say burn your idols, but I do think God wants to burn the bridges back to your idolatry. And if I could be sensitive for a moment, I want to speak to this issue. You see, the local church burned their bridges back to their idolatry and the city began to notice. They realized the scrolls were dedicated to false gods, had more power than they realized in their life. And in order to eliminate that power, they had to burn up their idol. The church in Ephesus reconstructed their lives around their new faith in Jesus and they eliminated the things that distracted them from radical obedience. And this is the story. It's a story of 12 ordinary men and women filled with the Holy Spirit that begins to expand as the church has a courageous missional presence in the city and they're no longer, they're no longer settling for a complacent, compromised faith. And they choose to fully surrender their way to Jesus and they throw everything on the fire and they watch it burn. And the systems of power begin to notice the effects of holiness. The economy of Ephesus begins to tilt because of the holiness of the church. I think this is what God's waking us up to. That the church at the moment has been for a little too long swimming within the cultural realms of the world. And God's wanting to wake us up to stand in holiness and purity. Now, I've already said this. I'm going to say it again because what I'm about to do is I'm going to call some things out. And as I do, I don't want you to think that you're going to be more loved by God as you make any effort whatsoever. Grace is opposed to earning. As Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. 
And we are called to learn the ways of Jesus as much as we begin to live the truth of Jesus out. And I believe there's a, a call in the church to step into a season of holiness and purity. Joshua, there's a prayer that the pre-service gathering had last week as we were praying, or maybe it was at the staff meeting, where they were sensing that uh, there's a calling right now for this moment where Joshua is about to lead the people of God. And he takes over for Moses, and there's this epic kind of be strong and courageous, and you're going to lead these people into their inheritance. And then Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you will see the Lord do amazing things. Consecration, holiness, is to be set apart from the things of the world, to be set apart for the purposes of God. I believe that the church in this moment needs to wake up because God wants to do something powerful, but he's looking for people who will be useful. I think holiness in the kingdom empowers you to be useful in the kingdom. Before I talk about today, can I just give you a quick little thing that happened in history outside of the Bible? In 1904, during the Welsh Revival, um, it, the Welsh revi Revival was marked by a passion for purity. Holiness was the consistent theme as 100,000 new converts rejected their sinful lives, confessed Christ, and joined the church in 1904. But this change in their lives had a profound impact on culture. It was reported that pit ponies could no longer work because they didn't recognize the commands of the converted miners. The, the little horses they used for mining, the, uh, the, the, because those who no longer swore, cursed, and beat ponies, they didn't get how to do their job. The, the horses didn't know how to do their job because the miners stopped cussing and beating the ponies. This is all, this, the, the, the standard of living went up. Health and literacy improved as money previously wasted on alcohol was invested in home, clothing, food, and books. Pubs closed as abstaining from alcohol became the norm. Lawyers left, were left with fewer cases to try as crime diminished. Old debts were paid. The streets were peaceful. Swearing was, was, was seldom heard. The card of jail had a period with no inmates. And on New Year's week, there was not one arrest for drunkenness. The police were employed to do nothing. It's from Simon Ponsonby in his book on, um, the, I think it's on, it's called The Pursuit of Holiness. And I didn't put it up there because I put it in last minute. So the question I have is what about today? We might not have statues dedicated to foreign gods, but we definitely worship idols the same way the Ephesians worshiped idols with our time, energy, money, and resources. And if we were to have the church this morning actually warm up to a bonfire, which sounds really nice. <clears throat> if we're like, all right, guys, come back at 2 o'clock. We're going to build this bonfire. I want you to go home and bring your idols. What would you throw in that fire? Just think for a moment. Where do you find meaning, purpose, significance, and identity outside of Jesus? So I think if I were to name some things, I just want to highlight a few from my own life, if that's okay. I'll talk about my idols. That way it's safe for you to talk about yours later. Our generation and myself, we worship the idol of self. 
We live to fill our desire and dreams. We are isolated and autonomous. We worship a curated self-image that we broadcast to the world. And we find so much meaning from what people think about us or how many likes we, we get, period. And this obviously is played into by social media, but we worship the self more than ever before. Our health has become an idol. Our body, we need to care for our health. We need to care for our body, but it has become, for many of us, an idol. Our preferences. We worship control and security and comfort, and it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Does it not? We worship money and status and wealth. Do I need to go on? We worship power, our career, and job. We worship our sexual identity and our need for sexual pleasure and sexual freedom. And we worship freedom without restraint. We worship our stomachs, our appetites, our desires, our particular tastes for that particular great coffee or that particular great restaurant or that particular poke restaurant. Um, We overindulge as a form of idolatry. We overindulge in alcohol. We call it moderate or moderation when it's not. We overindulge in entertainment, social media, internet. I feel like if there's anything we can see the enemy winning, the enemy's winning by keeping us distracted. And part of the problem is our culture is swimming in this. And everyone's writing books about it. There's like new psychological terms for the type of addictions that are being created by technology. Technology is a great thing. It healed my wife of a heart condition. It, it helps my son when he can't breathe. It connects us to the travel the world. We can FaceTime and we have all these amazing things with technology. But it's also destroying the fabric of relationship within ourselves. It's destroying ourselves. We have to have a healthy balance, a moderate living culture. We worship therapeutic consumerism and materialism. And we joke about, you know, if I could just have the, that pair of shoes or that jacket or those jeans, I'll be enough. But we consume experience and travel and restaurants. We consume relationships. We consume technology and so on. So I guess this morning I just want to ask you, what are your idols and will you burn them up? My, my quick story, and then I'll, I'll end, land in prayer. Um, I was burning out in ministry early on because I worshiped the idol of approval. I thought my job was to make everyone in the church happy. And so I, I'm a, a, a number three Enneagram, which means I, the fear of failure is my greatest fear. And so I just run faster as it got bigger. When someone was at, had conflict with me, I just want to make sure I made them happy. And so I'd preach that way. I would lead our church that way. And I got to the point where I was so sick, the doctors thought I had cancer. And I was, parts of my body weren't operating this well and correctly. It's, I was getting procedures that 60-plus-year-olds are supposed to get as male. And um, I was 27. And I began to realize that I was worshiping the wrong image of God. He was the disappointed father, and I had to prove my worth to him. Um, but I carried other things, and eventually what the Lord began to reveal to me is, actually, Darren, you're swimming with culture in a way that I want you to stand outside of culture. So he spoke to me, and this is not prescriptive, this is not a definition of holiness, but I, God spoke to me individually, and he said, Darren, I want you to give up alcohol. 
I opened, I, I had theology on tap nights. I brewed my own craft beer. Like I, this was a serious, it took me 15 months to say yes to it. And as I began to step into it, I began to realize that I was masking all sorts of things with that comfort. And it led into a season of minimalism where I lived with 33 items of clothing. You can do that in Southern California. Um, I, think, I think I'm wearing all of my 33 items if I came here. Because <laughs> I didn't need socks, so that was really easy. But it led to me and my wife realizing that there are all sorts of things that we are holding on to, the point where God asked us to sell our home and give it away. Because we weren't dependent, and God wanted to show us that there was some things of comfort. And it wasn't for approval. It was for knowing the heart of God for us. I, I just share those things because you don't learn how to give up shoes, or you don't learn how to sell homes and give them away until you learn how to give up shoes. You don't learn how to help people in their lives when you're swimming in it in yourselves. And I guess the last, I'll just close with this. I don't know how to end it other than prayer. So what caused the riot in Ephesus? The church was filled with the Holy Spirit. The church had a courageous missional presence within the city. And the church gave up its idols. So can I just invite you as a church when I leave and from this point forward, just keep on being filled with the presence of God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Two, would you just, I challenge you to be courageous. Don't come in here telling stories from six years ago. Come in here every week with a new story. Be courageous to reveal God's love to this beautiful city. You are a gift to this city. Reality San Francisco. Be courageous as church. And lastly, give up your idols and as you learn to reconstruct your life around Jesus.